0: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. August 17th, 2023, the Georgia versus the Trump 19 edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. Uh, I'm still up here in gorgeous Vermont, thank goodness. Uh, John Dickerson is still uh, yon and beyond elsewhere nowhere to be found, but Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School is here from New Haven. Hello, Emily.
1: Hello, David.
0: That is not to say that John has actually disappeared. We know where he is. He's just not here. I didn't mean to imply that he had gone somewhere else. It's okay, because in Johnstead, we have first-time GabFest co-host Lulu Garcia Navarro. Lulu is, of course, a Great journalist of long heritage at NPR. She's now a host with the New York Times audio section where she's developing a new show. Hello, Lulu. Welcome. I don't even know where you are. Welcome from wherever you are.
2: I am in Washington, D.C., which is not the center of the political universe at the moment. Um, uh, It is, though, very hot.
0: This week on the GabFest, Georgia indicts Trump and his lackeys and enablers for their attempt to overturn the 2020 election results in that state. Then Montana kids win a climate suit and Maui's residents lose everything. We'll talk about two different aspects of the climate crisis that showed themselves this week. And then what to make of the sad and strange drama around the blind sides, Michael, or just an amazing gripping and really unsettling human story about a professional football player and his adopted in quotes family. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. So, this is the first one he cannot pardon his way out of. Former President Trump and a fool's gallery of sycophants and malfeasants were indicted for many, many felonies in Georgia. A grand jury convened by Fulton County prosecutor Fannie Willis accused Trump and the 18 others of a conspiracy to overturn the Georgia presidential election in 2020. Here's a clip from DA Willis at her press conference.
4: I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the laws. Um, the law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. To date, this office has indicted, since I've been sitting as a district attorney, over 12,000 cases. This is the 11th RICO indictment. We followed the same process. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges.
0: So, Emily, what are Trump and his hench people accused of, and and why were they accused under a RICO statute?
1: All right, so at bottom, we are still talking about the alleged scheme to overturn the results of the 2020 election. In particular, trying to alter vote counts by fraud and intimidation, the um, slates of fake electors setting them up to um, pretend to be the people who get to have the electoral votes, and then the whole um, effort to pressure Mike Pence into refusing to certify the vote on January 6th. And then in the context of RICO, where you have to prove um, racketeering, you can have acts that are um, criminal and also acts that are not criminal, but you have to show that there are like manners and methods um, by which the alleged organization was pursuing its criminal objectives. And so now we're in a different buckets, making false statements to state legislators about the outcome of the election and soliciting them to reject the lawful electoral votes, false statements to state leaders that were similarly trying to get them to change the outcome, Um, creating and distributing false electoral college documents um, to the archivists, the president of the U.S. Senate, Georgia secretary of state. Again, same objective harassing and intimidating um, Ruby Freeman, who was an election worker in Fulton County, and soliciting high-ranking Justice Department officials. Uh, this is, you know, the part that involves or allegedly involves um, Jeffrey Clark, who was at the Justice Department, to falsely tell government officials in Georgia um, that there was reason to think that the election had gone awry. And then, you know, things that we're a little less familiar with, at least in the context of President Trump, like unlawfully accessing the secure voting equipment in Georgia, stealing voting data, and covering up that conspiracy by filing false documents. There are lots of facts um, to sift through here.
2: One of the things that I found really interesting um, that Willis said about RICO was that it's a tool that allows the prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story. And so it is also a kind of Storytelling uh, method that I think will play really well. I mean, one of the things that's been really touted about this case is that it's going to be televised, unlike the federal case against Trump. And that I think is going to play really well into these charges and into these cast of characters. In looking into who exactly is part of this uh, case, you know, you really have people from the very top to just very interesting people at the bottom. And so it's going to allow her, I think, to be able to tell the story of what happened in Georgia in a way that otherwise um, I think would be harder.
0: Actually, let's linger on one point that you just hit Lulu for a second just to clear up legalities of it. So as you say, it's a state case. It is not in the federal system. And thus that if Trump were president again, he could not pardon himself out of. But there is this move, Emily, that Mark Meadows and Trump are purportedly planning to, to use a, uh, a provision in federal law to move the case into federal court. And I was wondering what you made of this. What, what is it? What you make of it? And then actually, the second my second question was, if they succeeded, does that make it a federal charge or just makes it a state charge being tried in federal court?
1: The move to move the case from state court to federal court is this idea that if you're charged with something and it relates to an act by an officer of the United States that is taken what's called under color of the office, like basically it has to do with doing your job, then you can try to move over to federal court because you are holding federal office. There's a pretty good argument that Larry Tribe, who's at Harvard, and a few other people are making that, you know, this is not a good use of that statute, that Trump was not acting in the course of duty. I guess Meadows might have a better argument on this, but you're right. It is one of the first things that we're going to see happen. I think that if it moved over to federal court, it would have to remain state charges because these are all state charges. Um, Willis is using the Georgia version of RICO, which in some ways is broader and allows for a more sprawling kind of tying up all the threads, the kind of narrative Lulu was talking about. So I think these would remain state charges, but they would be heard in federal court.
0: I mean, just not to turn uh, too abruptly to the politics of it, but one thing that I did think about was these indictments so far, the four of them, uh, have not really changed the dynamics of polling or of the, certainly not of the Republican primary, except to, to solidify Trump's hold over it. And they haven't really changed the polling as it relates to a general election that will be more than a year away. Um, but I do think that this Georgia case has an interesting potential effect on the election, not nationwide because I don't think it will overarchingly change how how Republicans feel about Trump. But there is this strain of Georgia Republicans, including the governor and the Secretary of the State, who have been very critical of the way that Trump interfered in the 2020 election and will not, there will not be a strong uh, institutional support for Trump from Georgia Republicans in 2024. And so there's this chance that, at least in this one swing state, the fact that there's a very public trial that is about Trump's meddling in their state and their process and their integrity could sort of diminish Republican enthusiasm for Trump in ways that it might not in other states. That's maybe a, a, a... Three bounce uh, shot and pool or something, but it does feel to me like this case might have an impact on the presidential election in a way that the other cases have not. Any any take on that?
2: I mean, that assumes that it's going to happen in time for the presidential election. And you can be pretty sure that President Trump and everybody else is going to be trying to delay this trial as much as possible. And, you know, it's a big, big case. I mean, it's a 98-page indictment. Um, It's got 41 counts. It's got almost two dozen people who are being charged. So, the idea that this is going to happen in time for the election, I think, is a bit of a stretch. I mean, we've heard that the uh, prosecutor now wants to hold it on March 4th. That's right before Super Tuesday. Um, but everything that I've heard about this case and everything that I've heard experts discuss about it is that it's going to be a real push to get this on the docket and, and expedited in time for the election.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine how that's going to happen. And then that raises all kinds of questions about the timing. I mean, of course, this really all depends on whether Trump is elected or not. But, I mean, if he's not elected, then you have what would essentially be a kind of late accountability sideshow, right? If he's the president, how does the prosecutor get him to sit for this trial, a state prosecutor? Like, that is just a really... I mean that just makes my brain melt a little bit what that would actually be like I honestly can't imagine it
0: <laughs> Do you guys think the former president of the United States admittedly a former president who has you know abused his office uh should be arraigned in the Atlanta courthouse in the same way that someone who's you know booked for stealing a car uh, is arraigned and same mugshotting uh same you know spending night in a holding cell if you have to i don't even i'm sure they would get around that but do you, just as a matter of sort of ha, the the dignity of the country should this should the president have to go through that in the same way
2: one of the things that we've seen president trump do is sort of gin up these mugshots and use them for fundraising um he has not been mugshot um correct me if i'm wrong but i don't believe he has actually had a mugshot in his previous um processes. And so this would be the first time that he would actually get that done if indeed they go that route. And But he's used these sort of fake mugshots to get people to give him money. So I'm not sure if dignity is the right word here, because if you're already using fake mugshots to get, you know, support and financial remuneration from from people, um, then is it really such a stretch to actually have him get an actual mugshot? So I think it's more like a tactic. The spectacle of having him there already is going to be so large that I, I don't think that it's necessary, but it may be that they want to make a point that he is just another defendant, um, which is something that they've been saying all along.
1: I feel like this is the only thing I feel certain that I do think that, yes, this should happen, that he should be treated like every other defendant, that this is how the American justice system works in Georgia, and so he should go through all the steps of it. Really? Yeah, I really do. I mean, there are so many things about this case that make me very nervous about the intersection of law and politics and how it's all going to play out, but – this part that like yeah you have to show up and give your fingerprints and take a picture just like everybody else. I don't really understand why the justice department or the Manhattan DA's office decided to exempt him from this. It just seems like that's how the system functions. And if you're going to say like the rule of law applies to every one, this is an important first step and kind of symbol of that. I don't know. David, what do you think?
0: I'm ambivalent. I I'm, I love institutions and I love per- I think institutions I'm conservative in that way, and like to protect institutions and protect their their dignity and protect their, you know, the trappings of of office. and I do think it's important that when you meet the president that you should say, Mr. President, because there's something about having held this office that is important. and i i i mean trump Trump screams out for for not being given that dignity because he is he has so abused the office, he has so disgraced it, he is so torn apart these other elements of it and yet i i guess i think there that the president and the former presidents have a certain ceremonial role in american life that that should cause us to treat them a little bit differently and i think emily you but you are absolutely right like he has to be held to the same laws that the rest of us have and are and 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 that means being treated the same way under the law and part of that is how the the actual operations of the justice system treat you. So I'm ambivalent.
2: I think he isn't just another defendant, and it's less to me about the ceremony of the role, um, and more about just giving him more political ammunition to gin up this idea that he is being persecuted.
0: So Emily, only a fool compares their children. But how do you, when you look at the this indictment and kind of stack rank it against the other 3 criminal indictments that have been laid out against Trump this year in New York for election law violations related to the Stormy Daniels payment in Palm Beach uh, in Florida for uh, his hiding, withholding and tampering with evidence regarding secret documents that he took after the presidency brought by Jack Smith the special prosecutor Special counsel, um, and then by Smith again in Washington D.C. for his overall plot to overturn the election—sort of the the national counterpart to this Georgia case. Where did where did where does this one rank in your um, pantheon?
1: I mean, of course, the main point to make is like this is just flabbergasting that we would have all these allegations of criminal wrongdoing. Um, Uh, Sticking like burrs to this one person. This is, as Lulu said, like the big storytelling, the big baggy indictment with lots of people in it, lots of chances to try to force witnesses to cooperate. And then this, you know, use of RICO, which is like a sledgehammer that prosecutors have wielded in a way that it hasn't been wielded before. But, you know, it's certainly been wielded in white collar cases before. And the sort of basic notion here that the people who are at the center of the conspiracy can't be tagged with a lot of the actions because they had all these aiders and abettors who kind of heard the call of let's go overturn the election and then did lots of actual things to make that happen. There's something satisfying about the idea of trying to hold Trump responsible because otherwise you have all the underlings taking the fall and not him. You know, on the other hand, Jack Smith's indictment is very narrow. There's Donald Trump at the center of it. The other co-conspirators are unindicted. If there's a prayer of getting to trial before the election, that case has a much better shot. The Mar-a-Lago case has some very nice, like pretty cut-and-dry specifics and the facts sort of stack up in a way that I think is very good for the prosecutors. That case, though, has this question of which classified documents are actually going to be allowed in court, how that's going to play out, and then that question of whether um, the Washington, D.C. judge's ruling uh, that pierced attorney-client privilege and produced some important evidence is the Atlanta judge, alien Cannon, go along with that. So, you know, we'll see. And, you know, to me, the Manhattan case is the kind of small fry. I've never been a huge fan of that case. But I don't know, at the end of this, like, maybe that will be the only thing he's convicted for. Who knows?
0: Do you want to hear more from us after this episode? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. So you should stick around for a bonus segment. Today, we're going to be talking about FOMO, about fear of missing out. You would have FOMO if you do not get to hear the segment about FOMO, FOMO in this summer. But this segment is just for Slate Plus members. So if you are a Slate Plus member, thank you. No FOMO for you. Because of your support, we've been able to keep the GabFest going for so many years. And if you are not a Slate Plus member, maybe you should sign up. Consider it. You'll get bonus segments every episode of the Gabfest, as well as on many other Slate podcasts. You'll get special discounts to live shows. You'll never hit the paywall on the Slate site and a lot more. So if you're a member, thank you. If you're not a member, go to Slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. That's slate.com slash GapFest Plus. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
3: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: The deadliest American fire in a century has killed more than 100 people in Lahaina, Hawaii, on the island of Maui. The fire, which was possibly caused by electric wires blown down in a heavy wind, wind that was accelerated by a Pacific cyclone, a Pacific cyclone that was very strong, possibly because of the warmth of the Pacific Ocean because of climate change. The fire that was definitely fueled by dry, invasive grasses, grasses that were dry because there's a drought that has seared the island, possibly caused, exacerbated by climate change. It destroyed uh, more than 2,000 structures in the town, took all of those lives, and uh, leaves leaves an absolutely devastated community. At the same time, the same week, across the ocean, here in the mainland, the children of Montana won a suit in state court. A state judge found that the right to a clean and healthful environment guaranteed uh, by the state of Montana and the Constitution gives these children a right to to uh, fight the way certain laws in Montana have been executed. So there's a law in Montana that forbids the state from considering climate change and greenhouse gas emissions when permitting for fossil fuel fuel projects. This is the first ruling of its kind in the nation where where sort of the health of the children and the future of the children has been taken into account in a climate case. So, Lulu, the juxtaposition of these two things is is really interesting. But let's let us start with the Montana case for the moment. Why was that exceptional? Why was it interesting?
2: So the Montana case is interesting for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, the first, actually, is that this was one of the first cases. To actually use as a tactic to go after government. The idea that this was actually a case that said the government of this state is not protecting its children. In the Constitution of Montana, there is this idea that you should be able to have a clean and healthful environment. It's a so called Green Amendment, as they're known. And so essentially, they were saying, hey, governments issue permits for fossil fuel companies and governments have an important role when it comes to deciding how people will live. And so one of the main things about this really was that um, it is a case that allows people, it opens up the door for um, many suits now potentially to go after governments and how they regulate industries within their state.
1: Yeah, I like this case. I like this case because of the state constitutional provision that you were just talking about, which, by the way, was enacted into Montana's constitution in 1972, which sort of makes sense. Like it has a very Earth Day feeling about it. And, you know, what the um, kids who sued, what the plaintiffs are arguing here is that, You can't have that broad, you know, idea of protection and then also say, okay, when we're permitting, we're gonna just take climate change out of the equation, which is what the state is doing and which obviously protects a lot of the coal production that's going on in Montana. I don't think that, directly speaking, this case actually leads to a whole lot of other cases or victories because not very many states in the U.S. have these kinds of constitutional protections. But I still think in Montana, like, this is important. And there's also a growing body of international law that's starting to take these same kind of steps, um, which I think is also really interesting. I mean, one
2: of the things that for me is is really interesting about this is that There is a big push, though, to enact other green amendments in other states. And, you know, what the ruling also said was basically that you know, climate change exists, and that humans cause it, and that that really wasn't under dispute. And I think, (laughs) I know in the grand old age of 2023, that that seems like a small victory, because we all realize that climate change is indeed being caused by humans, and we can see its effects all around us. But the very fact that this was sort of laid out in law, and the state didn't actually try and dispute it on the merits is also being seen, I think, as a pretty big victory for environmentalists.
1: Yeah, the state put on like 10 minutes of evidence, right? They kind of said they were going to challenge the science of climate change, and then they didn't. So that in itself is resounding. Absolutely.
0: But don't you guys suspect, I mean, it seems like given the politics of this country that we're probably headed for a world where there are states, you know, where we have blue states and red states for climate law too now montana is an interesting case because montana's a red state and this is a a blue victory as it were but i'm a i'm not at all sure this is going to hold up i bet an appeals court strikes it down or the state legislature finds a way around it i i think the chances that montana stops doing fossil fuel projects and stops digging out its coal is is basically zero um and that we we're going to have you know, climate law attempting to be made at a state level, but but because so many states like your Texas's are extremely red and extremely pro fossil fuel ex- extraction, and because the economies of those states depend on the fossil fuel extraction, that it's unlikely to, to have an actual effect on what we drill and what we dig.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is like, what is the role of courts in solving this problem, right? Because like, Addressing climate change is a problem of our democracy um, it's a problem of the whole earth, and really, you want people to be weighing in and making decisions about this, not you know unelected judges. On the other hand, these are exactly the kinds of long-term problems that Voters tend to be not very good at focusing on. And so, even if what ends up happening here is a ruling that is largely symbolic um, or gets overturned, I still feel like it's just important that in a court of law, when you take consideration of the evidence of climate change, and you match it up with how the state is considering um, those impacts or failing to consider them in permitting coal plants. Like that is important. It's part of the puzzle. It's kind of helping to inform the public. It's making some kind of statement about where the science is here and, you know, what kind of values a state constitution can try to uphold.
2: We actually uh, spoke to Grace Gibson Snyder, who's a 19 year old who was one of the plaintiffs in this case. And what she told us was, you know, and I'm going to quote here the trial is a great opportunity to lay this all out. Um, that displays the entire picture of how Montanans have had their environment impacted because of fossil fuels. And I think that there's something compelling. She told us that they could see us, the flesh and blood, Montanans youth, that there are actual people that their actions are impacting. So again, it's this idea of trial as storytelling, trial as an ability to take all these disparate kind of things that people have trouble focusing on and really make it about people who are actually harmed. And I think that this really did that. You were able to put a face um, and a story to what climate change does to people and how it impacts us all. And I think we're going to be seeing more of that. I, I don't think we're going to be seeing less of it.
0: I mean, I guess I totally understand that as an emotional appeal, and I understand the importance of that. And as the long-term narrative, to go back to what you were talking about with our earlier story, Lulu, it's, it seems so important it just seems like when we think about the the actual the fact is there's there are fossil fuels that exist they are in the ground around the world and it's very lucrative for lots of people lots of countries lots of businesses to extract them and it's an extremely lucrative business um, and until it is a less lucrative business or until some other way of creating energy is more lucrative it's just going to be it's just a tragedy of the commons. So even if Montana somehow miraculously stopped its climate, its fossil fuel extraction, which it won't, like there is so much pressure around the world that is what is causing all this growth of the CO two. And so I guess I just don't feel like the problem is solved. Going, at, the problem has to be solved by making energy costs lower. the The cost of producing other energy has to be made much lower, uh, and the cost of of uh, That has to come down a ton before there's going to be real change that will benefit the children of Montana. Because, because that's the, the the tragedy of the commons is that it's just so economically valuable for any one person to extract the oil, extract the gas, extract the coal that's available to them.
2: Of course. I mean, I think that's underpinning all of this. But I, I do think that when you're dealing with a problem like this, it is it is. Going to have to be dealt with in the courts. It's going to have to be dealt with at a political level. It's going to have to be dealt with at a personal level. I mean, one of the things as I was reading in on this that I found really interesting is that you know these green amendments. You're right, sort of were a product of the 1970s and this whole idea of like Mother Earth and Gaia and you know um, the the ideas back then of what of of how we should treat the planet. But they really came into their own in the early 2010s and Pennsylvania, um, which had a green amendment. And then the Supreme Court there struck down a fracking law um, that said that basically, you know, you could do fracking anywhere in the state and there didn't need to be any kind of oversight of that. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, actually, no, we have this in our constitution in the state that says that actually people do have a right to a healthful environment. And so, I don't think alone, of course, that these lawsuits um, and these legal challenges are going to have an effect. But I do think that there is an idea that we need to make it as hard as possible, the environmentalists say, to have these fossil fuels to be extracted anywhere at any time. Because if we don't take this to the courts, if we don't make it difficult for the politicians, um, if we don't sort of attack this in all the different ways that we can, you know, it's it it is going to spiral even more out of control.
0: You're absolutely right, Lulu. And I, I would amend my previous remark by saying you want to make the alternative energy cheaper. But I guess the, the other thing you could do is make the current energy more expensive. And one way to make current energy more expensive is to make it legally difficult to get it out or make know that you if you're a fossil fuel company it's going to cost you 20 40 more to get it out because you're going to have these legal bills so that's a that is that's a really good point let's connect this a minute emily to what's happened in hawaii i mean this is a human tragedy it's an environmental tragedy and it's you know a deeply expensive economic disaster as well uh and there have been wildfires in hawaii before this current wave of climate change, um, there will be wildfires again. You can never attribute any one thing to the changes in the climate, but it does feel that climate is an accelerant here.
1: Yeah, I mean, it does. And there are just all these examples are proliferating and there's a lot of human suffering and just like emergency going on, right? I mean, the instability just feels so present now. And it doesn't seem like, especially in this situation, that, you know, the emergency warning system in Maui was at all equal to the challenge. And then, you know, there's this sort of underlying problem of these invasive species, these grasses that are growing in Hawaii since its plantation um, era ended, that are creating all this fuel for this wildfire. And that seems like it played a big role. And of course, like that also seems like it's linked to climate change. It just feels like the earth is shifting on us. And we, the humans, the way that we built things, the way we've been kind of relying on some kind of environmental stability to live our lives, it's just like, really up for grabs in a lot of places. And this is probably just really dumb because I've never been to Hawaii, but this is so at odds with my idea of like what Hawaii is like, that there would be, you know, droughts and all this dry um, kindle around. And that, you know, in this place that's supposed to be this kind of island paradise, you would have this kind of terrible tragedy with this death toll, which continues to rise.
2: What's interesting about Maui, I will say, is that the island is sort of half and half. One side is really, really dry, famously. The other side has the road to Hana, and it's like this, you know, kind of lush paradise, which is the kind of Maui that you imagine. And so just its own topography and climate microclimate is interesting but of course it, it exists in this wider climate crisis and you know um maui county was seeing a severe drought there were high winds from a storm um and so it all led to this terrible thing happening but i think i think you're right emily for me the big lesson of this is how we are living on this planet now and we seem to have reached a tipping point i'm from florida And it breaks my heart every time I go back there to see that we are building in the same areas that have been devastated by storm surges just a year before. And I don't understand why that's happening. And I think we really need to think about how we make the places that we live more resilient. And one of my colleagues at the New York Times really made this point in a recent article that he wrote, and he said, you know, essentially a lot of the buildings acted like kindling and that we're seeing the role that normally would have been played by trees and where you have fires sort of jumping from tree to tree, actually that happening because we are building so precipitously in areas that perhaps we shouldn't be building in, and we're building in ways that we shouldn't be building. And so that, to me, is the real kind of warning of this, um, among many others, which is, how are we going to live in this new earth that you rightly say, Emily, has reached this kind of weird tipping point? And how are we going to rise to the occasion? Because we we do still live here, but it seems like the way that we're living is not interacting with the climate that is evolving.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I've just been struck this summer, so i live in washington dc and this summer while i was there just torn storms incredibly potent storms have torn through the city a couple of times and in my neighborhood ripped it up destroyed tree after tree after tree so just changing the natural habitat of the place but then crushed cars crushed houses while doing it i think there's been a death even um and so here's and 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 apparently according to the insurance industry 58 percent of insurance claims uh this year have to do with thunderstorm damage severe thunderstorm damage so so this enormously costly storms that are hitting this rich cities that's one now i'm up in vermont and vermont again prosperous state um and every road essentially is broken because there's been this enormous amount of flooding and the traffic can't move it's really hard to get from anywhere to anywhere else and You know, these are the the only two places I've been and there's chaos and we can't catch up. We can't catch up. We can't catch up. And it's incredibly expensive to fix whatever it is we're doing. I don't think that the roads, for example, in Vermont are being rebuilt in any particularly different way. I think it's just like, let's rebuild it so we can get on it for this fall. It's really worrisome to think of that as a global scale. And this is in the richest possible country in the world with the country with the most resources and imagine what it will be like in countries without that.
1: Rich but stubborn, right? Like rich but unwilling to really rethink the way we've done things. And also, you know, just not having really fixed the problem of like how to ensure things to encourage people, you know, to make sure that people aren't just completely devastated, but also to encourage people to rebuild in a way that doesn't create the same risks right over again. Can I say one happy thing, though? Please. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I mean...
2: I mean, sure. the, but, yeah, sure. Just I'm like, <laughs> yes. we're, we're, we're going down a spiral of doom here, which I think is totally warranted. And just let me say that the, there was a storm in DC just a few days ago that like ripped off my roof and just down the road, it flooding swept into a, a doggy daycare center where dogs died. So I'm not unfamiliar with just the panoply of horror that this is unleashing. Um, but, I I will also say that in my area, you know, they've just redone all the sewage system and, you know, we had lead pipes here and because of the infrastructure act, you know, I've actually for the first time ever seen tangible benefits to where I live, which has been a historic area in DC where there's been a lot of flooding, that they are kind of having the money to try and address it. And so you know, I mean, there is also a sense that things are happening and so I I I don't want it to be um sort of this idea that everything's bleak and you know nothing is ever going to change. Even in Florida in Miami, you know, we're seeing a real push to kind of shore up you know the the, the areas that flood. That said, I can't end on a too happy note because you know, it just feels like things are moving way too fast. Infrastructure takes a long time. Our, our street took something like six months. Our street took six months to get right. Um, imagine all the different things that have to happen for the entire country, the entire world to be protected. The future of America is in your hands.
3: This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power
2: of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts
0: the saga of michael Orr took a strange dark turn this week or of course was the subject of the blind side which is a 2006 michael lewis book turned into a 2009 mega blockbuster movie it was i'm using a lot of words in quotes here the heartwarming story of how Orr, who is phenomenally talented and enormous was a phenomenally talented and enormous black teenager from a troubled family in memphis was taken in by sean and leanne tooey who are a fantastically wealthy white family in in tennessee
2: who is that Esther? big
3: mike he goes to high school here what is he wearing it's below freezing do you have any place to stay tonight don't you dare lie to me
2: was this a bad idea
4: that's no, the big deal it's just for one night it is just for one night right leanne
3: tell me just one thing I should know about you. I don't like to be called Big Mike. Leah, this is another one of your charities. We need to find out more about his past. He's been the in seven
0: different saw or as a point human being who needed care, but they also saw him as an incredible football prospect. Toohey Sean, Tui, big, big, big mega football booster at Ole Miss. They brought him into their home. They raised him as their child. Again, sort of in quotes there, they helped him in school he went on to an all-American career in football at Old Miss and then a very solid NFL career and made a good living as an NFL lineman. Uh, the Blindside movie won the Oscar for Sandra Bullock, but its depiction of Orr, and I actually haven't gone back and looked at the book, but I've I talked to people about the depiction of, of Orr in the movie. It depicts Orr as kind of shiftless and ignorant about football and the Tui's clearly as his white savior and the Tui's young son as teaching or about football it's the movie is problematic or this week accused the twoies of manipulating him uh in various ways he said they took his share of movie money that movie that made 300 million dollars and that he had basically never made any money off of it he said they had much to his dismay he had learned they had actually not adopted him they'd only uh created a conservatorship that made them his guardian And gave him control over, gave them control over his economic decisions. He said that they had abetted him signing over his life rights at age 16, so he got nothing or very little from the book and the movie. Um, And so he's suing them to end the conservatorship and also to vindicate himself. The TUIs have fired back by saying they didn't make any money from the movie, or very little money, I should say, uh, that they put, the money that they had made aside for him um that the conservatorship was never secret that it was always it was done as a legal maneuver to help him get into college uh and or had threatened them with a shakedown that he had said he wanted money from them or he was going to go public if he didn't get money from them with an embarrassing story it's a terrible sad really sad story um so I have many, many thoughts, but Emily, what do you make of this besides that? It's very, very sad.
1: Oh oh man. I mean, so first of all, and maybe this is extreme, but are we going to look back on the movie, the blind side, the way we think of a movie like gone with the wind that in its time, it was hugely popular and, you know, enthralling, but that actually what it's saying about race relations is like beyond cringeworthy because it just takes these stereotypes and like, make packages them and makes them seem heartwarming, but actually like portrays this person who, you know, is an intelligent person who says he knew a lot about football as like, you know, just unable to really figure things out for himself. I mean, the part of this that really gets me is actually something earlier from Orr's book about himself, where he says that he thinks that it really got in his way, this movie, because people assume that he was dumb and didn't know how to do things. And that, you know, as a football player, that was a problem for him and impacted his career. And just also the way he has to like be thought of in the world, even before all of this, like tragic, very messy um, segment in this drama, I just found that to be something that was like really worth thinking about. The part about the conservatorship and the fact that he thought he was being adopted and um, didn't understand this. I mean, it or says that now and the kind of counter accusations. It's just really hard to know what's going on um, at the moment because these are such damning allegations on both sides. And we just don't really know the truth of the matter. But it's profoundly sad, obviously, that this relationship has fallen apart in this way. And when you're super wealthy and you try to help someone else, if you seem to be also profiting from it in some way, that is really a problem. And I I, the idea that he did not really benefit from this movie that is all about him and his life rights. I don't know. I mean, also, maybe we should blame the producers of the movie in some way that, you know, they haven't quite been on the hook for. I'm not sure, but it just seems so troubling.
0: Michael Lewis, the author of The Blind Side, came out yesterday and said, you know, blame Hollywood. They made $300 million off this movie and the two and I didn't see very much of that at all. I would just like to note that, that a lot of my thinking on this is informed by talking to Josh Levine, who is the host of Hang Up and Listen, the Slate Sports Podcast, and Josh will be talking about this on Monday and Hang Up and Listen. I strongly advise you to listen to him because he has a really deep, deep understanding of it. But Josh wrote this actually fascinating article back in 2010 about the other Michael Orrs. Michael Orr is not the only young black athlete who was taken in by an incredibly rich white family and quote-unquote adopted by them. And there's dozens and dozens of examples of these. And it's just a, a way in which the the uh, sports valorization of sports and the over-importance of sports in the life of America has, has created a bunch of odd, unusual relationships, some of which I'm sure are wonderful and some of which can really turn sour. One of the things I wondered about the conservatorship and the fact that he wasn't adopted is the two in their writing about or, and in Lewis and his writing about or, again and again and again and again use the term adopt. Again and again and again. They use adopt, and he was never adopted. And so that disingenuousness really is rankles at me. That is, that is a claiming a kind of virtue that you haven't earned. And especially if you're a family that has hundreds of millions of dollars, I, I mean, I have no idea what the how the Tui's estate is is going to be disposed of. Maybe they've you know they've they've earmarked it all for their church or for a charity, and their children will get nothing. But I really wonder if Michael Orr, their child, their adopted child, and they're claiming is is set for the same share that their two biological children are are getting after they have they have made such a scene about them being the adopters of this person.
1: Right. I mean, they're saying, like, we didn't make money off the movie, but the real question is, if they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, how much is Michael Orr, you know, part of that? It seems like the answer is that he's not.
2: I find everything about this super icky. And they um, wanted
0: virtue. Right. They wanted credit. Yes,
2: totally. On the one side, yes, you have had you have the Tuies who sort of were beatified through the book and the movie – as these very clear white saviors who rescued this at-risk youth, uh, shepherded him, you know, onto greatness. And I think it is very problematic that this weird conservatorship (laughs) exists still, when in fact, you know, this man is now in his 30s. Perhaps you could make the argument when he was 18, As they have made that they needed to have this relationship in order for him to be on their health insurance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But conservatorships, as we know, give you control over the person if they are incapacitated in some way. Um, It isn't that you then, as the person who is being overseen, have a relationship with the conservators, and so that seems to be a one-way street legally, which they had have maintained. But there are questions. I mean you know, or had money and deals that he had that were worth $28 million. Did he sign his own contracts? You know, I've, uh, I've seen people ask that. Um, Did he bank his own money? I mean, what was the relationship financially um, on the other side of that in terms of how he managed his own affairs once he was in the NFL. And so I think that there's a lot of questions here. I, I, I don't know that we can fully understand the complexities of what obviously was a very strange relationship that was, you know, that happened in the limelight of of Hollywood and of books being written and the NFL. And and so I, I'm not really sure what we can say other than it's already being refracted in our very weird system where I'm seeing the headlines on Fox news taking the side of the Tui's, and I'm seeing left-leaning organizations take the side of Michael Orr. and I find that equally icky and depressing.
0: Of course, of course that's happening. Of course it's happening. Oh God. I mean, or really does have the right to be so upset about that movie portrayal. I mean, jo- Josh Levine, again, we were talking about this yesterday. He said, you know, here's, Here's a telling fact that no one knows the actor who played Michael Orr in that movie. That movie is all about Sandra Bullock. It's a movie about Sandra Bullock, even though it is Michael Orr is the, the person. It's like we cast a gene- yeah, we cast a generic, large uh, black man to play this role, and n- in no sense is, 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 is he made central and he's made to look foolish. You can imagine how, how wounding that would be.
1: It plays into every single trope. Right. That's what I think really gets me, all the stereotypes. That we
2: understand about um, where, you know, wealthy white people sit, the idea of charity, the idea of who's at risk, the idea of, you know, um, who is disadvantaged and, and race and how that plays out. I mean, everything about this is so is so baked in and woven into America's real struggle with trying to understand its own racial history and its own relationship um, to racism and slavery and all the terrible things that have um, happened in this country. And then it, they love to package it up in a tidy bow and put a white face on it in Hollywood. And then it actually makes a mint. So- We are the problem too, right? We are also the problem because we consume it and then we say, well, wait, why are these the stereotypes that keep getting fed to us? It's because we keep buying the tickets.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you have watched finals of the Women's World Cup and are gonna be kicking back with an early morning drink, Emily, what are you gonna be chattering about?
1: I have a couple of books to recommend. One of them is called The Fear of Too Much Justice. It's by Stephen Bright and James Quack. Um, it's about inequality in criminal courts, um, a subject that I think and talk a lot about. I learned from this book, um, even though I'd like to think that this is a subject I know fairly well. And Steve Bright is um, just a-, a towering figure in the world of death penalty defense and um human rights in the United States. So really a chance to learn from him by reading this book is like something to celebrate. Um, And then I have another book that I haven't started yet, but looks so good, or at least just seems really helpful to me right now. It's called the women of now it's by Catherine Turk, um, who is a historian at UNC at Chapel Hill. And it's about the founding of the national organization for women, Um, Which, you know, Betty Friedan and Polly Murray are like the well-known people, feminists who started this organization in 1966. But Turk decided to really try and tell the story through some relatively unknown people, someone named Aileen Hernandez, uh, who was a federal official. Mary Jean Collins, a union organizer, and Patricia Hill Burnett, who's a Michigan Republican and former beauty queen. And I just really like the idea of um, tracing the inception of now through the eyes of people who weren't necessarily at the top of the organization and thinking about the role this organization played. It's like a way of revisiting 1960s and 1970s second wave feminism. So it's called The Women of Now by Catherine Turk.
0: Lulu, what is your chatter?
1: So I've been watching Only Murders in the Building which uh, the
2: third season is out and running. And I just want to talk about Meryl Streep for a moment because (laughs) you always see Meryl Streep pop up in really unexpected places, and she is so good in this. It is just such a clever way of using her. She plays this down-on-her-luck actor who gets discovered um, by Martin Short, quote unquote, in to be part of his new Broadway production. And she has this incredible scene where she auditions and you can see Meryl Streep and she is just fully Meryl Streep and she just gives this incredible performance. And then she comes in and then actually for the table read is just completely terrible and a wreck and very, very funny doing it. And it just um, encapsulates the delights of this show um, where they're really using, I think, to great effect, famous people coming in as character actors. And I'm just enjoying it so much. And it's so cozy and everyone's wearing tweed and it makes me desperate for fall.
0: I will also chatter about TV. Uh, My kids and I and girlfriend have been watching hijack. (laughs) which is an Apple TV show starring Idris Elba. He plays this sort of ambiguous character who's caught up in a hijacking on a flight and it is absolutely gripping. It is, I, It was only agonizingly did we turn it off. I think it's seven hours long, we're three hours in. I hope we finish it tonight, um, hijack on Apple TV. Also, just a side bit of log rolling, we are hiring a host for our CityCast podcast in Las Vegas. So we are uh, looking for someone who really wants to talk about Las Vegas every day. And you you do not have to be in Las Vegas now. If you've thought about making a move to Las Vegas, we're interested in someone who has an interesting perspective on the city. It's a daily local podcast that we do uh, in Las Vegas and, of course, 10 other cities around the U.S. And uh, you could have a great time doing it so if you're interested you can go to citycast and find our jobs page and look it up there you can email me at gmail.com and i'll put you in touch with the right page so we're looking for a host for a las vegas podcast listeners you send in Chatters to us, you email them to us at slate.com You continue to tweet them to us at gabfest We check it. So you could tweet us to it, the tweet us to it, tweet your chatter to us there. But better yet, email to us at slate.com something that is gripping you, something that is exciting for you. And our listener chatter today comes from Julian. Hello, Gabfest. My name is Julian, and I'm a software engineer out in Brooklyn. If you go to San Francisco, it has become impossible to miss the swarm of self-driving cars roaming the hilly streets. As of last week, they are even operating 24 hours a day. My channel, however, revolves around an article the San Francisco Standard published documenting the phenomenon of people having sex in self-driving cars. The article states that some riders are wondering just how far they can push the vehicle's limits, especially with no front seat driver or chaperone to discourage them from questionable behavior. The two riders claim that during their trip, the windows fog to the point where a normal driver would not have visibility. I hope this serves as a nice reminder for anyone working on tech or policy that no matter how optimistic or careful you are, your products will never be used as you intended. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Ops. And Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate please follow us on Twitter at at and email us your chatter at GavFest at slate.com for Emily Bazelon and the delightful Lulu Garcia Navarro. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. And I think John is back next week. Hello, slate plus. How are you? Are you having an Instagram worthy summer? Are you, um, are you in Svalbard? Are you, like whale watching in Svalbard right now and posting that to your Instagram account. Perhaps you have climbed um, seven 14,000 foot peaks in Colorado and you are a whatever they call those, a 14er and you're posting that perhaps you've climbed all the Monroe's in Scotland this summer and you're posting from your Monroe's climbing or perhaps you're, you're, you're merely sitting comfortably Comfortably in a cafe in Amsterdam, very, very high, and having uh, a beer after getting very, very high. Lulu, you wanted to talk about FOMO. Why do you want to talk about FOMO?
4: I
2: want to talk about FOMO because I feel like this is the summer where FOMO finally has come back after the, you know, horrors of the pandemic where everyone was shut inside. But one of the one things that I really appreciated about the pandemic was that I really was not envying anybody. Um, I
1: really, there was no social event to not be invited
2: to. (laughs) There was no social event to not be invited to. There were no trips that were being taken. Um, if someone was caught going on their super yacht, um, they were immediately vilified. And so therefore I was happy about that. And so, you know, there was this weird last summer thing when it was supposed to be hot girl summer, quote unquote. And I took that under advisement. I went to Europe. I immediately caught COVID and spent the entire time in a cottage in the Cotswolds um, by myself, very, very sick. And so it really, really sucked. And so this summer I was like, I'm not taking any chances. I'm just going to lay low But this was the summer when everyone came out and had an amazing time and got Beyonce tickets and Taylor Swift tickets and everyone's writing about their European vacation and how great it is. And I didn't do any of it. And I felt a great deal of FOMO, but I'm going to rephrase this now because I actually think it's not FOMO, which is fear of missing out. I'm going to call it YAML. You are missing out. (laughs) I was missing out. and so. That is that is my take on my summer so far. My child was like, why aren't we going to see Taylor Swift? Why aren't I part of this amazing thing that everyone's talking about? And, you know, there's this collected joy that everyone apparently is feeling. And yeah, I'm I'm I feel curmudgeonly about it. I'm I'm I've got lots of FOMO.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation.